We're going back to the Bible, which has got me really excited. I love history and I love the last two years, but I've missed being in the Bible. And so uh, uh, this, uh, my pledge to you is to try and make this very Bible-centered. But yet it's not Bible-centered in a verse-by-verse manner. What we're going to be doing is taking the Bible through the eyes of Paul, St. Paul. And so we'll be, we'll be in, instead of just going row by row by row like we're looking at uh, uh, rows of corn, instead it's going to be a flower arrangement where we have an arrangement but we grab flowers from different places and put them all together so that it makes sense. Is that okay? This morning and next week are introductory lessons. This morning's an introductory lesson to what the class is about. Next week is an introductory lesson to the various writings of Paul. And you put those together, they're very important classes, but they'll form the foundation for where we'll go from there. Now, I want to start this morning, and my introduction this morning is just to clarify one thing. Was he Paul? Uh Uh-oh, we have no remote control. Bam. There. Was he Paul or was he Saul? Now, I want to do a little poll here. And you got to be honest, even if it winds up embarrassing you a little bit, because maybe you messed it up. Okay? I want to poll. How many of you, and I'll make it a little easier on you so it's not as embarrassing. How many of you at some point in your life thought that that there was this guy whose name was Saul until he was converted, and then he got his name changed kind of to Paul? Anybody ever thought that or? Okay, good. I'm not the only one. Um, And then, let me go a little bit further. How many of you thought that the name was changed from Saul to Paul because they sort of sound alike? Okay, I am the only idiot on that one. Well, it seemed poetic to me. If you read through your Bible, you will see in the book of Acts we find our first appearance of this man named Saul or Paul. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. And while Stephen is stoned, the clothes of the people throwing the chunks and rocks at Stephen were laid at Saul's feet. Saul, S-A-U-L in the English. If you keep going in Acts chapter 8, you'll read about Saul persecuting the church. In Acts chapter 9, Paul's on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus calls him Saul, calls him Saul twice. If you go further and you go to Acts chapter 11, Barnabas goes to to find Saul. Because he needs him. If you go further in Acts chapter 12 and 13, Barnabas and Saul leave Antioch and go on a mission trip together. And it's while they're on that mission trip in Acts chapter 13 that the book of Acts tells us, 13 verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. It was at a magician who was messing up the message. And Paul calls down a curse on him. Don't mess with Paul. Okay? 
Now, Acts chapter 13, the mission trip continues, but all of a sudden it's Paul. See, Saul changes to Paul, not at the conversion. And you keep going, and it's Paul preaching in Galatia. You keep going, and it's Paul in 15 who goes to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem conference. In fact, from there on out, it's always Paul unless Paul's describing his conversion. And then when Paul describes his conversion, he always says that Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul. So, what's going on here? Well, here it is. Roman citizens like Paul had three names that were required to be registered. You were required to register three names at the time of Paul. The first name... Are the prynomen, oh, time out. I'm using as an example, Gaius Julius Caesar. You ever heard of him? Okay, we might know him as Caesar. We might know him as Julius Caesar. But his whole name was Gaius Julius Caesar. Gaius is, can also be Caius. Okay, same thing. But here it is. The first name, or the prynomen, is the Latin for that. The first name was your personal given name. There are only about 60 of those that seem to get used all the time. We've got thousands of inscriptions, but it's the same 60 that seem to get chosen all the time. Gaius was one of the 60. It means happy. It would have been a personal name chosen by a parent who was happy at the birth of their child. I don't know if they had an appropriate name for someone who was miserable. You know, Hebrew was wonderful. Hebrew, you could put together these long names that meant child of my 47-hour labor. (laughs) But the Latins, they had simple little first names. And these were given names, and people might actually be called by these names. But Gaius, for example, would have been Julius Caesar's first name. Caesar's second name... Julii are the nomen. Nomen means name itself. Genticulum is another Latin word that's used for it. It's a reference to your heritage, what clan you were from. Julius Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar was from the Julii clan. Our seventh month of the year is named after the Julii clan. July. In the Caesar calendar. So the Julii clan, that was the clan of which Caesar belonged. And then that third name, your um, uh, uh, nickname of sorts, that's the cognomen or the, the name that goes along with it in Latin, the cognomen. The third name is a name that your parents would give you as kind of uh, your, your nickname. You know, like uh, they had uh, some people who didn't have a lot of hair. And so the parents might name them Baldy, except they'd use the Latin word. Those are the three names that would get registered as a Roman citizen. Oh, look at the little baby. Is that a... Who's that? Hi, Daniel. That's wonderful. Well, speaking of babies and names, does Daniel have one or three? Three names. Three names. Could be a Roman child. (laughs) 
we have three names. I have three names. I'm William Mark Lanier. But our three names does not come from the Roman three. The Roman three kind of died out when the Germans invaded uh, Rome in the four or five hundreds because uh, the Germans only had one name. And then one name around the 10th or 11th century didn't get you very far because too many people had the same name. So they'd start calling you by a label. If you were a blacksmith or something, it'd be Tom the Smith. And then they got rid of the the. Lanier is a, an old French word for goats. Mark the goat. But anyway, that's the way names were. Now, let's get back to the Bible. We don't know Paul's first name. We don't know his second name. But Paulus would be the Latin of his third name. It means little. He was a little baby. So that Paul, we could just nickname him Little. We're going to talk about Little Paul in this class. Now, that was his Latin name. But Paul was not just a Latin. Paul was also Jewish. And so his parents, as Orthodox practicing Jews, gave him a Hebrew name as well. Saul is his Hebrew name. Saul in Hebrew, Shaul, is the way it would be pronounced in Hebrew. It means ask for. So Saul's Hebrew name is someone who's asked for or who's called for. In Latin, he's little Paul. In Hebrew, he's someone who's been called out, who's been asked for. And I would strongly suspect that his parents named him that because they had asked for a child, perhaps a boy. And so when they got what they had asked for, they named him Asked For. But the name is very appropriate for Paul much beyond that. Because Paul was not just called by his parents. Paul was called by God. And knowing his name, his Hebrew name, knowing all of his life as his parents would have called him Shaul, that he had been asked for and he had been called, no doubt made a difference on him. I don't think he ever could have written the things he wrote without it registering in his brain somewhere. You know, this is the man who says, who has God say about him, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. That's his name, Saul. Set apart Barnabas, which, by the way, is Aramaic for son of the father. Set apart Barnabas, the son of the father, and that guy that's been asked for, because I've asked for him. Paul himself would say that he's a servant of Christ Jesus in the start of the Romans letter, that he was called, he was asked for to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. So that's who Paul is. Paul is Saul and Saul is Paul. And they didn't change his name because he got converted. And the rhyme had nothing to do with it because it didn't rhyme originally anyway. So with that, we've got his name straight. We're ready to start talking about him some. Why are we going to study Paul? What's the point in studying Paul? I and mean, I've had people say to me, Mark, why are you doing a Paul study? 
Why don't you study the Bible? Well, Paul's in the Bible. Fine, then you'll cover him when you get to him. Study the Bible. And, and you'll never find anyone more desirous or intent to study the Bible, um, uh, at least in, in my heart, than me. I, I mean, that's my desire. But when we study the Bible, we pull out some personalities that have things that can help teach us. So we might study King David. And we might learn from King David, a man after God's own heart, certain things. Or we can look at David's relationship with Jonathan and learn about friendship and what it really means to be a friend. Or we can go back and we can study Joseph and we can see someone who had God's hand on his life, who gave his life for God and everything he touched seemed to to, to work almost. And yet in the midst of it, he's doing God's will and he gets sent to prison because he's accused of molesting his boss's wife. Wrongly accused. We can study different personalities and we can find all sorts of wonderful things and that's reason enough to study Paul. But let me give you some other reasons. Look at what God did through Paul. If we put up a map of the Roman Empire... And we throw up there, I mean, we've just finished church history. And those of you who were in here for two years, we marched through church history. Here's the way folks Jackson says it. He said, Paul found the church, a small Jewish community with crude messianic conceptions. And he left it, Paul left it. A world organization in which there was neither Jew nor Gentile. What does he mean? He means that at this little bitty place in Israel. A little backwater part of the Roman Empire. At the time of the crucifixion, it's Jesus and just a ragtag few. But in this backwater place, this second afterthought to the empire of Rome, comes a faith that ultimately, by the death of Paul, has permeated all of the Roman Empire. Now, it's not Paul that did it. Let's be very careful here. It's God who did it. The acts of the apostles should more appropriately be labeled, in my opinion, the acts of the Holy Spirit. But God used Paul in truly a miraculous way, like no one else, to spread what was originally a small little sect or cult within Judaism. With a, a very limited perception of Jesus. And I loved Pastor Fleming's Matthew 16 sermon this morning. Because it shows how mixed up Peter was. In the very same chapter as Matthew relates it or records it, you've got Peter in one breath understanding Jesus is the Son of God and making that glorious confession, which Jesus says he didn't get from his own head, but God revealed to him. And then just a few verses later, Satan's speaking through Peter, telling Jesus not to go through with it. And so here's Peter who can't keep straight God and Satan in terms of, the message Peter's delivering. Now, once the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, it opens Peter's eyes tremendously. 
But you've still got a very crude, limited understanding. The apostles meet together with the elders of the church of Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 15, trying to figure out an answer to the question, when you become a Christian, if you're a Gentile, first, do you have to become a Jew? See, they, they, they don't, it, it's, it's not like on Pentecost, bam, they had full understanding of all theology. God has never been lacking in understanding. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they got it. But we're all imperfect and, in, and, and we're all human. Just because God works through Paul and works through Peter and works through others to produce an inerrant scripture doesn't mean Paul and Peter were inerrant in their thoughts. And so what we have, it, the scripture is, don't get me wrong, but we have in Paul someone that God used to take a small movement and make it something that's worldwide. Brought his church into uh, a, a much developed growth. That's a reason to study Paul. Now, why do we study Paul's teachings? You know, why are we going to spend some time just looking at Paul's teaching of the Holy Spirit? Why are we going to spend time looking at Paul's teaching of uh, salvation? Why are we going to spend time looking at Paul's teaching on predestination, free will? Why, do, why don't we just... Well, I'll tell you why. Peter, in Second Peter, said the following. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. Now listen to this. There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Isn't that wonderful that Peter says that? So when we come across things that are hard to understand, just sort of pat yourself on the back and say, Oh, I am so like Peter. Uh-huh. <laughs> I also love the fact that Peter recognized the writings of Paul as Scripture. So he says, they're hard to understand. The ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. What Paul wrote, Peter recognized was inspired. But at times, hard to understand. So one of the beauties of studying Paul is we find phrases and ideas and concepts. Some he wrote to the Galatians, some he wrote to the church at Rome. But when you put them together, you begin, one shows insight to another. The iron sharpens the iron. You begin to, to, to understand and develop a better understanding of what Paul was trying to say. So that's another reason. Third reason to study Paul and his teachings the faith implications of Paul's conversions. Now, time out for a minute. PowerPoint issue for this class. I don't know how the screens work. So I got two different pictures of this. This is Caravaggio's painting of Paul being converted. You can see he sort of fell off the horse. And he's looking up to the sky with his arms. As he's seeing the vision of Jesus and hearing, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Alright, here's Michelangelo's. Which one shows up better? Those who like, we got one and two. This is like your eye exam. Which is better, A or B? A or B? A or B? All in favor of A, raise your hand. All in favor of B? 
Michelangelo got dissed at Champion Forest Baptist Church. Okay. I'll go for the darker pictures then. Um, I took a class in Pauline theology. That's what it was called. And in that class, this has got to be, I guess, 25, well, 30 years ago. In that class, uh, I was taught that the conversion of Paul is a huge issue uh, to help people in their faith with Christ. And I'll be candid with you. I thought, eh, that argument did not impress me much. 30 years later, I'll tell you about uh, eight years ago, I was studying this stuff fairly uh, intensely for me, and, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I don't know what happened between the first time I heard it and the second time when I experienced it, but I was a different person. And I'll tell you, I am of the ilk that what happened to Paul is a huge, huge issue of faith affirming to me. Uh, That's not good grammar, but I hope you get the idea. It's very affirming of my faith. Because here's what it is. Paul was rich. Paul was from a wealthy family. Paul went to the best schools. Paul had Greek education, Latin education, Jewish education. Paul was a bon vivant, a man about town in Jerusalem. Paul was on the best committees. Paul had direct access to the high priest. I mean, that's like field marshal for life. That's a real high position. Paul had it all going. And he threw it away. He threw it away and embraced poverty. He left home and became a nomad. He repeatedly got stoned. He was left for dead. He'd have to sneak out of places. He had people laugh at him. He got beaten. He got shipwrecked. He had countless health problems because... He was convinced that Jesus Christ had died on a cross for his sins, was buried, and was resurrected, and had appeared to Paul. Now, Paul's one of two things. He's either an absolute nutcase, or he's for real. And I've read his writings enough to be absolutely convinced he's for real. I've met nutcases. They don't write like that. I'm not going to make any comments about L. Ron Hubbard right now, but you go read his writings. Paul's for real. And you don't do that. You know, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's talked to over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. You don't give up all of that just for a, a fancy. So this will be interesting for us to cover, and it's another good reason to do it. Now, how are we going to study it? Well, first of all, we're going to use the Bible. 
figure that's a pretty good place to start. What about you? I have broken out my English Standard Version. English Standard Version. It's a newish version of the Bible. It's really good. I really like it. For those of you who haven't celebrated Christmas yet, okay, I'm a bit late on this Christmas gift idea. I'll admit. Maybe you got a gift card. Maybe you're taking a book or a present back. Get you an English Standard Version, and I'd urge you to get one that's got really wide margins so you can make notes in it. It's a splendid version, and it's the one I'm going to try and use as I work through this class. Now, I'm going to be doing it. Where do, what do we get out of here? Well, we're going to get stuff out of Paul's letters, and we're going to hear about those next week. But not only are we getting stuff out of Paul's letters, we get stuff out of the book of Acts. Now, Paul wrote, he wrote almost half of the New Testament books. I don't count Hebrews as Paul. If I'm wrong on that and Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, then he wrote more than half. That puts him up to 14. But he wrote 13 of the 27 books. So we got some pretty good source material on him there. But Paul's also the focal point from a human perspective. Again, the Holy Spirit's the focal point of Acts. But from a human perspective, Paul's the focal point of the last two-thirds of Acts. And so we've got a lot of material from Acts to look at. Now, I've got to tell you about a fella. His name's William Ramsey. And here I've got a copy of his book, St. Paul, the Traveler and Roman Citizen. Okay? Mine doesn't have the blue cover. It's an older edition. It's kind of an icky blue with a thing on it. But this is written by a guy named Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey... It was born in Scotland in the mid-1800s. He becomes this mega professor of humanities at Oxford. He's like this uh, super archaeologist. And he decides during the summers that he's going to go back in Turkey and reconstruct the early church. So this is a scholastic guy, okay? He's like the first chair of archaeology there. He takes his cruise and he goes back and he starts doing his investigation and he, he's not satisfied. He can't find anything that really helps him plug into the history of the early church good. So in desperation, he finds a Bible and he turns to Acts. And he says, maybe this will help me. Now, Sir William Ramsey was a, an educated man. And he had been educated in the... Tubingen school of New Testament criticism. It's the liberalism we talked about in church history in the 1800s. And the German liberals in the 1800s had taught the educated world that the book of Acts was a third-rate history book put together in the 1 to 200s by someone who was trying to foster an agenda and was absolutely unreliable for any measure of history. He said, so it's not too reliable, but that's okay. I'm going to use it anyway because I can't seem to find anything else that's helping me. So he takes the book of Acts and he goes and he starts doing his archaeology and he starts doing his digs. You know what? This professor of history and archaeology, years later, writes and says, the book of Acts is the most credible history book I've ever come across. And this isn't a theologian writing. This is a archaeology history Oxford professor writing. He says, it turns out, it's dead on. Dead on. Fully reliable. 
first-rate history book, Book of Acts. It says, if you want to know about Paul, count Acts in when you're reading about Paul. Here's the way he says it. The characterization, and yes, that's a misspelling to us because we're not Brits. The characterization of Paul is so detailed and individualized, again, we would use a Z, as to prove the author's personal acquaintance. Whoever wrote Acts, he says, knew Paul personally and knew him well. Moreover, the Paul of Acts is the Paul that appears to us in his own letters, in his ways and his thoughts. I like the way he says this. In his educated tone of polished courtesy. In his quick and vehement temper. In, in the adaptability which made him, Paul, at home in every society, moving at ease in all surroundings, everywhere the center of interest. Whether he's, uh, whether he's the Socratic dialectician in the Agora of Athens, we'll study that. Or the rhetorician in the University of Athens, we'll study that. Or conversing with kings and proconsuls, we'll study that. Or advising in the council or, or, or on shipboard or cheering a broken-spirited crew to make one more effort for life. That's Paul. So why are we going to study Paul? I mean, how are we going to study Paul? Well, we're going to use that. We're going to use his books. What else are we going to do? We're going to use some scholarly works. We have here, can I get some help passing these out? We're going to try and... We've got uh, one per family, so y'all have to, to do the family thing and share these. These are books by a fellow named F.F. F. Bruce, and I really, really, really need your help here, big time. This, um, this was one of my textbooks when I took Pauline Theology. It was one of three books we had. Uh, I've got an old version of it here, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Um, I would like this class to be one... Uh, I don't want to disappoint y'all, but the classes y'all have endured and suffered through from me and Stephen and others that have been teaching them have basically been seminary classes without the examinations and the papers required by you. Those will come. But this is a seminary level book. Now, one of our class members, and I try not to point Dale out by name, has told me, Lanier... You won't have 10 people in this class read past page 50 of this book. Huh? So, pretend you did. Even if you don't. No, this is a wonderful book. Dale points out that they're going to be... He said, I had to get the dictionary out like multiple times in the first few pages. If you see something you don't understand, skip over it. Just keep reading. Okay? It's got some great stuff in here. So I want you to get this book. Now, while they're handing that book out, I want to tell you about the apocryphal New Testament. We, we learned in, you remember, we spent three weeks in our biblical literacy class, if you were in here, covering the Old Testament apocrypha. That's the part that's in the Catholic Bible, but not in the Protestant Bibles. You with me? That's not what I'm talking about here. That's totally different. I'm talking here about what's called, whoops, I've got the wrong book. Uh, yeah, here it is. A New Testament apocrypha. Nobody accepts this as scripture. This is not scripture. These are false writings. There are a group of false writings that came out as part of the new, that, that, after the New Testament, if you will. 
that are called the New Testament apocrypha or false writings. One, several of them are, are Acts. There's the Acts of Peter. There's another one called the Acts of Paul. Specifically, the Acts of Paul and Thecla. The Acts of Paul and Thecla was written evidently, according to Tertullian, an early church father that you may remember vaguely from this class. The Acts of Paul and Thecla was written sometime around 70 or 80 A.D., after the death of Paul, most likely. And it was written as if it were a true accounting of Paul and this woman named Thecla. Truth of the matter is, the fellow who wrote it, an elder in the church, was deposed by, we are told later, by Jerome, was deposed by the Apostle John and admitted that he wrote it and kind of made it up. But that he did so out of love and respect for Paul. That didn't count. He lost his eldership and basically got in really bad trouble. But we've still got the book. So here's a book that's written 20 years or 30 years after Paul dies, and look at what it says about Paul. It has, uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, the following passage. This fellow sees Paul coming, a man of small size, middling size. His hair was scanty. That's, uh... Never mind, Lewis. But if we think of Lewis and Paul, you get the picture. His legs were a little crooked, and his knees were projecting, and he had large eyes, and he had Cro-Magnon eyebrow. His nose was a thing of size and beauty. He was full of grace and mercy. At one time he seemed like a man, at another time he seemed like an angel. Now, you've got to figure, most scholars figure, that's probably a decent description of Paul. If you're trying to write a fake book about Paul when people who are going to be reading it knew Paul, typically you're going to describe him fairly accurately. That gives you an idea of what Paul looked like. He was not persuasive because of his own charm and looks. It's the power of God. So we will look at other writings about Paul whether they're those, we'll look at writings of people like Josephus who wrote about what the Pharisees were because Paul says he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. We'll look at the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinic sayings from the Hebrew fathers because Paul was a student of the Hebrew rabbi Gamaliel and so we'll read some of the things that Paul would have learned from Gamaliel. We'll do all of this. How will we do it? Well, we have a plan. If you're failing to plan, you're planning to fail. We have a plan. The plan is on page 6 of your handout. It's what, uh, if you, we were really doing this as a school, this would be your syllabus and mine. Um, what the plan does is basically first look at Paul as a person. And so we'll consider Paul as a person. Who was he? What did he write? What's his background? What's his childhood? His Hebrew training? What was life like as a Jew? Uh, how, what about his rebirth as a Christian? Uh, which uh, uh, in itself is a question of whether or not that term is what he would use. But, but Paul's strengths and weaknesses, his friends, his co-workers, Paul the Apostle, his missionary travels. Then we'll look at Paul's doctrine and theology. So in this class, we'll look at Paul as he writes on God, Jesus, Scripture. How did Paul view Scripture? Paul on the law. Paul on salvation, the gospel, 
is legal language, the elect. Paul on sanctification. Paul on guidance. What does God want me to do with my life? What does he want you to do with your life? How do you tell? Paul on morality and ethics, what's right and wrong. Paul on spiritual anatomy, spirit, soul, body, mind, those types of words. What does he mean when he uses them? How does he use them? Paul on spiritual warfare, prayer, persecution, the church, worship, the sacraments, etc. So that's what we plan on covering. Uh Uh-oh, we got to go. So fasten your seatbelt. F.F. Bruce says, no single event apart from the Christian event itself. Christ event itself has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. So with that, here are your points for home. Let's get ready for this class, please, together. We'll have the chairs. We'll have the food. We'll have the coffee. The only thing we need you to supply is you. But you can also help us out a little bit there. Bring your Bible, please. And we've got these little things that we're handing out, the little paper mark, bookmark things. Let me tell you about them. These are what Sandy's prepared. Um, I've got a personal favor to ask you. Take one or two or three of these. We'll have more available. We'll have so many of these, they'll breed like rabbits. I want you to give them away. I want you to, when, when on Sunday morning, Stephen or David or someone asks you to stand up and to greet those around you, The hardest thing for me to do when I greet those around me is get them to tell me their name. I mean, it's just like, hi, hi. And you can say, hi, my name's Mark. Hi. So, this is the icebreaker. If you get to stand up and greet people around you, of course, this may chase them off. But let's give it a try. Say, hi, I'm so-and-so. Hey, question. I don't know if you go to a Sunday school class after this. If they do, leave them alone. We're not into brick stealing. We don't want to take bricks from someone else's class. Okay? But if they say no, they're not plugged into a class. Say, hey, I go to this great class. You ought to join us. See if it works for you. And you can give them this. You got a friend at work? Give them this. Got a friend uh, down the street? Give them this. Tell them they can use it as a bookmark. Tell them they can bring it. Come to class. It's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. Bring them. So I'm going to keep pushing these to you so that you push these to other people. So I'm giving you these to give away. That's part of your point for home. That's part of you getting ready. And then the last thing I'll tell you is this. The promise of God through Isaiah the prophet, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what God desires for it. It'll achieve the purpose for which God sent it. That is the promise. That's the scripture we'll be studying through Paul. So I want to thank you again for being here. Would you pray with me as we conclude today? Lord, through Jesus Christ, we humbly bow before you. Not worthy on our own, Father but made worthy through the blood to kneel before your throne with Paul, our brother, with Peter, with the people that you have called through all the ages to be your family, to be your children. Lord, I am excited to have a chance to work with my brothers and sisters in this room. 
to un, uh, uncover, explore, and, and study who you are and what you've done. And do it through the lens of Paul. Would your spirit please bless us? Get every human being that ought to be in this class in this class. And then let your word explode into our hearts and change our lives and our fellowship. We pray through our Lord. Amen.